0: For those of you who I haven't met, I think I've met everybody, but my name's Eric. I'm on the teaching team here at LifeSpring. Uh, Greg asked me to do this as uh, the issue with his, um, his daughter's wedding came up. And so I'm teaching today on Mark 10. Before we get into the, the passage, though, as I was preparing, I was thinking about some things that I've thought about over my career. Some of you know that, that I'm a pilot. And uh, one of the awesome things about getting to fly in Alaska, I feel privileged because you can see some of the views here that, uh, that I get to experience doing that job. I get paid to see those kinds of things. Kind of cool. <laughs> it's glaciers, Prince William Sound. That's a picture of Denali off of our wing. Um, and if you'll just hold it there for a second, Nate. This was one that I took off of a commercial jet airliner on the way down to the lower 48. So, I mean, you can see this just as easily as I can if you just open your shade instead of sleeping on the way down there. <laughs> I took a picture of that, and some of the thoughts that I've had in my flying experience is that view that you can enjoy from a commercial airliner, I get to enjoy it a little bit more often, is something that the kings of old, King Solomon, Pharaoh, the richest men of the world, Aurelia's nodding because she's heard me talk about this before, they never got to see this. They never, they never got to experience that view from 30,000 feet. You have. And I have. And if you, if you think about all the other things that the richest men of the world, just 150 years ago, could not buy that you can buy if you just go down to the store and buy your iPhone. At the touch of a button, you have access to almost every book ever written. You have access to loved ones on the other side of the world. Sometimes we'll do Skype with my mother-in-law. She lives in Israel parts of the year and we can talk real time with her on the other side of the globe. Pharaoh, King Solomon, kings of England, never could even conceive that kind of thing. If you've got abundant food, running water, free education, a car, heating, air conditioning, you're wealthy, (laughs) right? By historical standards, by global standards, every one of us in this room, whether you even if you don't have a job, you probably have access to those type of resources and you are considered wealthy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So today as we continue this series in the book of Mark, we're gonna talk about the rich young ruler. And in my opinion, he's arguably the closest person to a young American that we can find in the Bible. Up to this point in the book of Mark, we've seen quite a cast of characters, haven't we? We've seen demonized men living in caves in, among the tombs, man covered with leprosy, a desperate mom with a sick daughter, a desperate dad with a demon-possessed son, a cripple whose friends ripped a hole in the roof where Jesus was staying so that they can get access to him, a blind man, and of course, along the way, the ever-present religious leaders in their hypocrisy and high-minded legalism, as well as the uh, ever-present, sometimes naive, sometimes a little slow, but the motivated disciples. I don't know if you can relate to all those people, Um, but we can definitely relate to this rich young ruler because I think it's pretty close to all of us here. So this guy who seems put together, decently dressed, the educated, the business-minded, you know, just the good dude. We finally get a chance to see Jesus interact with that good dude. So let's read the passage. Mark 10, verse 13 through 31. A lot of times Greg will read out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, I'm going to read out of the NIV, the New International Version. They're very similar, but somewhat different. So if you have a Bible that is a little different in mine, it might sound a little different, but the message is the same. So here you go, Mark 10, 13 through 31. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last, first. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we um, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be here, Lord. I pray that you would speak through me; that it would be your words speaking, and not my words, Lord. That we would see the wonderful things that you have in your word for us, Lord. Prepare hearts and minds even now for you to speak. Let it be your words, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, at first glance, these two stories don't seem to to relate, right? But they do. Interesting note, each of the synoptic gospels, and what that means is the gospels that talk about Jesus' life in kind of a chronological order, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each of these has a passage back-to-back of Jesus blessing the children and then the rich young ruler. It's as if God wants us to see the contrast between the citizenry in heaven and the citizenry in the world. And what I find kind of funny is if you remember a couple weeks ago, Greg preached about being childlike versus childish. Do you guys remember that? And uh, Jesus had already given the, the disciples an object lesson about this. He had a child stand among them and said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. He did that in Capernaum. And now we find the the disciples with Jesus in Judea, and the disciples already forgot the lesson. They're shooing away the kids and they're shooing away the the parents that are bringing infants and young children to Jesus to receive a blessing. And the Bible says that Jesus was indignant. He was actually upset. He was somewhat angry that the disciples were hindering the little children. Interesting too, right? The disciples, I think, had good intentions. They were trying to protect Jesus from distraction. Does Jesus need to be protected? (laughs) He doesn't. He's the God of the universe. He's omnipotent, omniscient, and loving. He doesn't, yeah, unstoppable. He doesn't need us to protect him. I was thinking about that uh, in my life. We don't need to necessarily, quote, unquote, protect Jesus from the world. He doesn't need that. He just needs us to be obedient to him. God says, vengeance is mine. We're supposed to instead speak the truth in love. That's our job. And accept the kingdom of God like a child that doesn't hold offense. So what does it mean to accept the kingdom of God like a child? What does that mean? You've all seen kids at Walmart. Is that what we're talking about here? (laughs) Some of my kids at Walmart have been interesting too. Poopy diapers, spoiled attitudes. Like Greg said a couple of weeks ago, it's not about being childish, it's about being childlike. It means, what it means is to have utter dependence upon him. Wholly trusting in Jesus' provision with a sense of helplessness and need. Receiving without any attempt to earn God's favor. We need to receive the gift of God's kingdom with humility and thankfulness because it's not something that we deserve. In fact, we're somewhat helpless. Uh, I shared this uh, this illustration with the guys in my huddle uh, about a year or two ago, and it still holds true. I don't think anybody's here from that huddle. Um, so when Jake and my little guy was uh, was an infant, I remember one time very vividly, I was going to lay him down into his crib, and as I'm laying him down, I guess the feeling of him descending kind of startled him, and he kind of jumped like he was going to catch himself, and it made me kind of chuckle. I'm like, you're, you're like four months old. What are you going to do? Are you going to catch yourself? <laughs> And in that moment, it was, it was an illustration to me. And I felt like it was from the Lord of, well, you're no different. You're in my hands. And if you're trying to catch yourself in life, what are you going to do? You know? And that's what it means to be dependent upon God. Just like an infant baby is helpless and depends upon their parents for everything, that's the way we're supposed to go through life with the kingdom of God, depending on God's grace and mercy. So, now let's contrast that idea of dependence upon God with the next part of this passage where we see this man run up to Jesus and bow down before him. In Matthew's account, he describes the protagonist here as young. And then in Luke, his account of the story, he describes the young man as a ruler of the people. There's speculation that he might have been a young leader in the local synagogue. And in all three accounts, we find out that he has great wealth. So, this passage is historically called the rich young ruler. He runs up to Jesus, and he asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a fair question, right? I think all of us, to some extent, have a similar question. It's as if to say, I've been fairly successful in life. I have a good job. I'm respected in my field. But I feel like there's something more. What am I missing? And ironically, Jesus just answered that question, didn't he? He said, you need to be like a child. So why didn't Jesus just say, should have been here a few minutes ago, dude. I just answered that. And why didn't he give the same answer? You must receive eternal life like a little child. Why didn't he say that? I think it's because this man's heart, he saw something there. Jesus knew that there was something going on there. And isn't that the way Jesus says? He knows our particular situation. He's not going to give us the same pat answer every time. He knows your unique weaknesses, your unique strengths, your history. He knows you. And he knew this man. So Jesus answers his question with a question, like most wise men do. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Which brings me to my second point here. There's only one who's good. It's God. See, this title, Good Teacher, was not something that was commonly used in this time. Rabbis did not go around saying good teacher, because the connotation there, that word good, that meant something to them. To them it meant sinlessness complete moral goodness, almost godlike. And so they were hesitant to use that term good. And so Jesus recognized that, and he was being called this unique title, which is ironic, because if there was anybody who deserved to be called good teacher, it was Jesus, right? So why didn't Jesus say, you're close to the kingdom of heaven, like he did to another rabbi or another man that came to him? Why didn't he say that? I think Jesus saw something that was a little off in the man's question. He saw the man's heart, and he begins to draw him out. It was probably more likely that this guy was using the term a little bit loose, almost in a flattering way, kind of like, good teacher, my good man, we're all good here. He thought he was good, Jesus was good, they're all good, just two good dudes trying to figure out life together, right? But as a Jewish leader, he should have been a little more careful with that term. And he also noticed something in that question, too. What must I do? In Matthew, it says, what good deed or good thing must I do? What act to inherit eternal life? He was focused on deeds and works as if eternal life was something to be earned. You had to do something to get it. We can't earn our way into God's kingdom. So that question was a little off. We're not deserving of the eternal life by anything that we do. Why is that? If we look at Romans 3, Paul quotes the Psalms, and he quotes Ecclesiastes, and he quotes Isaiah, some things that this young ruler should have known. So if we turn to Romans 3, verse 10, it says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And in most of your Bibles there, you'll see the little A, next to your next to one there and it shows all of the scriptures that that came from psalms 14 psalms 53 ecclesiastes 7 psalms 5 psalm 140 all there in the old testament that this man had access to so in answer to his question jesus jesus immediately points him to the law he gives him the sixth seventh eighth ninth and fifth commandment you shall not murder shall not commit adultery shall not steal do not defraud honor your father and mother Bible scholars call this the second table within the Ten Commandments. What that means is it corresponds with the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, right? First half of the Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second part of it, love your neighbor as yourself. So what's Jesus doing here? He's pointing the young man to the law, the standard by which we're all supposed to measure our lives. But the young man, what does he say? He believes he's kept all of it. Hmm. So how many times have you heard someone say, I'm a good person. I don't murder. I don't do drugs. I don't steal. I'm a good person. Is that true? It's kind of a shallow standard. God's standard demands much more than just the baseline minimum. And there's an emptiness that comes from trying to just meet that minimum standard and living apart from God. In fact, we can't. We can't keep the the standard. So this man says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. In the version in Matthew, the man responds, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? I've been a good kid, I've had it all, and so why do I feel like something is still missing? And if you talk to the person who says, I've never done drugs, I don't murder, I don't steal, I'm a good person, more often than not, you'll find that there's something that they're still missing, right? Something that's lacking. Because it's not just about the outward action. It's the condition of the heart. It's the thoughts, the intents, the motives, as well as the actions. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus delivers, he expounds on the Ten Commandments, and he talks about murder. And what does he say? He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Specifically about murder, you've heard it said you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother with his brother will be liable to judgment. And about adultery, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is saying it's not just about the action, fellas. It's about the heart condition. How does that make you feel when you hear about those requirements, that it's more than just your actions, it's your thoughts and your intent and your motives? I know for me personally, it makes me feel like I can't attain it. See, the Pharisees and this rich young ruler, they misused the law to measure their goodness instead of seeing it as a standard that they could not attain. They misused the law by trying to establish the baseline, the minimum that I talked about, the minimum acceptable standard to get into heaven. They had an intellectual understanding of the law, but not the depth of it. God's law is not a minimum standard. It's a complete standard that requires total obedience. It's an impossible standard. It's designed to show us our sin. It was intended to show us how far we fall short from God's perfection. It was intended to show us our need for a savior, our need for Christ. That was the whole point. So in Romans 7... Verse 21, Paul talks about this idea. Kind of relates to the poem that I asked Will to read, the lyrics. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's a tug of war going on there that Paul's trying to describe. We need a savior. As I was preparing for this, I listened to a couple of sermons on this message, on this topic of the rich young ruler. John MacArthur described the law this way. If the law doesn't drive you to Christ, it will drive you to hell and spiritual pride. That one caught my attention. Because it's a dangerous delusion to use the law to justify yourself when it was intended to point you to your need for Christ. And that's where the rich young ruler was. He was stuck in spiritual pride. But what does Jesus do? In verse 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that line. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Isn't that a picture of what Jesus does for us? He sees us in the midst of our confusion, our ignorance, our sin and he loves us. It's the same way he looks at us when we're lost in our own sin. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Ephesians 2.4, when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive in Christ. Jesus loves him and exposes the truth. He cuts to the quick in his love, doesn't mince words, tells him to sell everything and give money to the poor, and then come follow him. You know, a lot of people take this scripture a little bit out of context, and that becomes the template, the minimum standard, if you will, to get into heaven. So does that mean that poverty is inherently more virtuous than wealth? Being poor is better? Nope, not necessarily. Is it because that's the one deed that will get wealthy people eternal life to sell everything and give to the poor? Nope. Eternal life cannot be bought. He's challenging him to honor the full law, love his neighbor as himself. And Jesus is trying to show him how far he falls short of that true standard. He's exposing the greed, the covetousness, the idolatry that's hiding underneath that question of what must I do. His possessions were worth more to him than eternal life, more than the opportunity to walk with Jesus. You can almost hear Jesus' thoughts. Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where's your treasure? What's that thing that's got a grip on you? Because in verse 24, that same passage in Matthew 6, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So in this tug of war within him, the rich young ruler, he chooses money over God. He chooses money over the opportunity to walk with Jesus. So he walks away sad. And interestingly enough, I think this is the only time in the Bible where somebody walks away sad from Jesus' presence. A lot of people walked away angry. They didn't like what he was saying. But this was the only time that somebody walks away sad. And it was of their own volition, their own choice. So Jesus uses this opportunity to teach his disciples. I like the message translation. Jesus says, Do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? You can't imagine how difficult and the disciples are shocked by Jesus' words. Why were they shocked? Did they believe the same thing, that wealth could purchase heaven? No, I don't think they did. What they did assume was that wealth was a testimony of God's blessing on someone's life. Is that true? So that's my third point. Wealth and poverty are not indicators of spiritual health. We've already talked about being poor as not better than being wealthy. Wealthy has its temptations and its things that can trip you up, but it's not an indicator of spiritual health. God brings rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And in the context of that verse, it means that he blesses people to have crops to rise, to bring wealth. Wealth can be gained both through legal and illegal means, right? Wealth can also be attained through very legitimate, legal, righteous means but then become a spiritual stumbling block as well. In and of itself, money is not good or evil. But it does have its pitfalls. So in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself, the love of money. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So there's some caution there for wealth, but in of itself, not necessarily a bad thing. What about our American culture? That's why I talked about earlier us being akin to this rich young ruler, because we give a lot of deference to the wealthy as a country, don't we? We give respect and honor to successful businessmen. We assume that the management of wealth is a qualification for leadership, maybe even a presidency or ministry. If we trust in riches, we're selling ourselves short of real life. Paul continues in his letter to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He's not saying it's bad. He's saying just Put it in its proper place. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Take hold of the life that is truly life. In verse 11 of that same chapter, 1 Timothy 6, Paul tells Timothy to, to flee But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit in increasing measure. That's the sign of spiritual health. Are the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, are those the things that are increasing in your life? That's the sign of spiritual health. Those childlike things that we need to enter God's kingdom. So it comes back to our dependence upon God, because we can't do it on our own. We have to depend on him the way that a child depends on his parents. Okay, my last point. So Peter comments on Jesus' words here about it being hard for a, a rich man to go into heaven. And by the way, just to explain what that whole camel eye of the needle thing means, that was just an expression of something that's impossible. There's talk about some gate uh, that was called the camel gate and a camel squeezing through there, and that's not really what the explanation is. I've, I've learned in my research that that explanation didn't come about until the 1800s. So going back a little further, it was just a statement to say you cannot fit an animal through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. And that's basically what Jesus was saying. It's impossible standard. So uh, Peter comments on Jesus' words and says, we've left everything to follow you. It's like Peter's almost saying, what about us? We've, We've done what you just said. And Jesus' response to Peter is so appropriate, so loving, something that we don't want to gloss over. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time The same thing, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, but with persecutions. That should get our attention there. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is basically saying anything that you leave behind is incomparable to what is to come, to what he has to offer. Which brings me to my final point here. Jesus is better, even in our suffering, even in persecution. Jesus gives us the life that is truly life that Paul talks about. There's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis that kind of describes our predicament that I really love. Listen to this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I love that quote. It's from the author who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Separate work. Jesus certainly demands everything from us, but he gives us a satisfying, a satisfying everything in return. He doesn't take it away and leave us empty. He gives us something better the something that we were designed for. It reminded me of this book that I read several years ago, and I'm starting to dive back into it, by a man named John Piper, called Desiring God. And the book is called uh, Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And hedonist, for those of you who don't know, it's kind of a big $50 word, it means a lover of pleasure. And so John Piper's argument throughout this book is that, like C.S. Lewis's quote, we're far too easily pleased. We're pleasing ourselves with things that don't satisfy instead of the things that ultimately satisfy. And so he's got a quote that sums up what Jesus is saying here in Mark 10 that I want to read to you. He says, Surely what Christ means is that he himself makes up for every sacrifice. If you give up a mother's nearby affection and concern, you get back 100 times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the warm comradeship, friendship of a brother, you get back 100 times the warmth and comradeship of Christ. If you give up the sense of at-homeness you had in your house, you get back 100 times the comfort and security of knowing that our Lord owns every house and land and stream and tree on earth. He takes away... Or he asks us to give up, but he gives something better in return, a hundred times. I was thinking about this concept this past week, and the Lord brought to mind the example of Moses and Abraham. It was one of those waking up moments where a lot of times the Lord gives me some pungent thoughts because I guess I'm not distracted. And I thought about how Moses left Egypt. He left his princely domain. He was raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. And then he called Abraham out of his ancestral homeland in Ur. But the story doesn't end there with either of those guys. He again asks Moses, once Moses has a family in Midian, he's got two boys and he's got a wife and he's a shepherd for his father-in-law, working for his father-in-law. He's got a pretty stable, comfortable life. And then God calls him to leave that behind to go free the Israelites from Egypt. And Abraham, who left his homeland, comes to Canaan, He's given a son in his old age and then God asks him to sacrifice his son. That's the way life is with God. He calls us out of our comfort zones and then he asks us to give up what we hold dear until the only thing that we hold tightly and the only thing that we're holding dear is him. Like Will read in in those lyrics, he has so much to give us but we need to be ready to receive it. We got to let go of the mud puddle so that we can enjoy the holiday at the sea. And even something as beautiful as the Alaskan mountains that we saw earlier is incomparable when you look at the wonders of the universe. pales in comparison. Jesus has more for us. So what's in your heart? What's that thing that you're holding on to, whether it's good or bad? Doesn't even necessarily need to be sinful. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, it says, Let us throw off everything that hinders, everything that hinders, and the sin that so easily entangles. Not just the bad things, but good things that maybe are taking a place that it shouldn't have. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So, what's that thing that has your heart? Likewise, are you confident in your own strength that you can meet God's requirements, God's law? Or do you see your desperate need for God's grace? Let's pray. Lord, I'm humbled by your word. Humbled that I was asked and chosen to deliver this message this morning. Humble that you use me as your mouthpiece. Lord, I hope that that same humility that I've felt as I've studied this and delivered this, I pray that that same humility would impact the people listening to this on the podcast, the people here listening to it, that life spring. Touch our hearts, Lord. Show us those things that are hindrance, show us those things that are coming close to idolatry if it's not already an idol. Show us those things that we need to let go so that we can fix our eyes on you and walk with you. Whatever it is, whether it's greed, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's a home or a location, a fantasy, an idea, a dream, whatever it is that we're holding on to that's taking the place of you Show us that, Lord, in this moment. Take a few moments to just continue to do that. Just search your own heart. Don't look around to somebody else who you think might have an issue. Just look to your own heart and your own issue. Let Let God work on you.